Welcome back to Access and Opportunity. I'm Carla Harris. In season four, we'll be speaking with entrepreneurs who have successfully scaled and sold their companies with a particular focus on the exit. And in this episode, I'm so excited to talk to Lisa Price, the founder of one of the nation's largest multicultural beauty brands, Carol's Daughter. In the late 1980s, Lisa was working in the television industry by day and formulating lotions and balms by night. And after 35 years of building her brand, Lisa sold her company to the world's largest cosmetic company, L'Oreal. In this episode, we take you on Lisa's journey to entrepreneurship, what challenges she faced as she scaled her business, how she found investors, and how she managed to successfully exit. But we don't stop there. I'm particularly excited to talk to Lisa about the challenges she faced as a woman of color and the backlash she received when she ultimately sold her company. And finally, we discuss how her story is helping to change the narrative of wealth and success in underrepresented communities. Come on and join me for the ride. Let me say, Lisa, thank you so much for having this conversation with us and access and opportunity so we can talk to entrepreneurs who might be thinking about an exit because you've done it. You've been there, done that, and done yes. so successfully. So thank you. Thank you. It's great to be here. Okay, Lisa, in 2014, you sold Carol's Daughter to L'Oreal, this company, this baby that you had built. How did you feel? I felt proud and happy and in awe and just so, so proud of the work that I had done, that my family had done, that my team had done, and all that we accomplished to get to that point. It was it was exhilarating. Okay. Yeah. So now you've, you've done the exit. Let's talk a little bit about what happened at that time. As you and I were talking about before, the last time we were together in Detroit, approximately you know three years ago, you told this story that took my breath away, uh, and that was up on the sale to L'Oreal. You got so much negative feedback because by then social media was born. People mm-hmm. could talk to you, folks you didn't even know, and I just could not understand that. So, can you talk a little bit about that and what you heard, and and we'll go from there. Yeah, it, that that was very tough for me as well. Um, I I announced on a Monday morning by 12 o'clock in the afternoon, official press releases went out. There was a video that I had recorded prior that went out to our customers to let them know this is what's happening. This is the, the sale that you're going to read about, but I'm not going anywhere. Your products are not going anywhere. You know, just assuring them that pretty much everything was going to be the same. And I went and did a television appearance. I went to L'Oreal to meet with the team on that side, the division that we were joining. So I didn't really sit down with my phone until that evening. And I am on the highest of highs. I am so proud of myself. I'm so proud of my team. It was 24 months of hard work, not just business work, but personal development work. And keeping secrets like that is really, really difficult. (laughs) And that's a big secret. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. And, you know, so I'm just flying. And then I begin to read social media and I'm reading these comments and I'm like, wait, don't you understand? Like, this was a good thing. 
And one comment in particular, the person said, I don't understand what it is that she thinks she's teaching her children by teaching them that it's okay to be a sellout if the check amount is accurate. Oh, oh. And I had to respond to that person because I was really enraged. And and as soon as I responded, my social media person said, put your phone down. (laughs) (laughs) Do not do this. It is not worth it. Do not do it. And I did. I listened to her and I put my phone down. And I think I walked around feeling hurt for the better part of that week, like just misunderstood. And I don't understand why people feel this way. And I ended up that Friday, I was in the audience of Oprah's Live Your Best Life tour. Yeah. And Oprah began to talk about how she had a television network. And her television network was going through difficulty. She was losing advertisers. The programming wasn't right. And she was focused on all of these things that she needed to fix. And she was out by her trees, a place where she goes to sit underneath the trees and pray and meditate. And she was she said she was sitting there and she realized you have a television network. Yeah. You know, like who cares about all of the other stuff? You have a television network. And she talked about how her grandmother was raising her as a small child to be a good maid and work for good white people. And she's like, and you have a television network. And I remember sitting there and thinking, oh, my goodness, I've spent this whole week upset about what these people are saying And what I understood in that moment was people had written a story for me without ever really asking me if that was my story. And they had decided what my end chapter was. And I took I took their story away. I sold my company that I started in my kitchen to L'Oreal. Yeah. (laughs) Who cares who's pissed off about it? That's amazing. Yeah. And then I wondered, is my team upset? You know, like, did did they hear some of this stuff? Do, Do they think that, like, we sold out or whatever? And when I got back to New York, because I was in Miami to see the tour, when I got back to New York, I got everybody together and I was like, I just want you to know that we are badass, that we did something amazing, that we have nothing to be ashamed of. And I used it as a teachable moment. Mm -hmm. So in speaking to people and doing interviews after that, I was trying to teach And I also realized that as African-American people, we don't have an intimacy with owning things. We have an intimacy, unfortunately, with things being stolen and taken from us and and getting the short end of the stick, if you will. So I began to see it from their perspective, that they're hurt, something that they felt was theirs, that was special. I had the audacity to give it away. And why did I do that? Because it was theirs. So I also understood that they didn't really understand wealth because it was something that I was still learning. You know, Chris Rock used to have this joke where he would say that rich is something that you can lose in a weekend in Las Vegas. Wealth never leaves you. Mm. You can't get wow. rid of it. True wealth. Wow. We don't have true wealth. We don't know what that looks like. We don't know what it feels like. We haven't had that benefit. And the only way that we're going to get there is we're going to have to go through the pain 
of owning things and giving them up Let and them let, go. letting them go because we have to have that capital in order to build something for the future. And just because of what I've done with my brand, I didn't get enough money from that to just like my kids are set. And no, I still have to be really smart mm-hmm. about how I save it and how I spend it and what I do with it. And they're going to have to be really smart about how they do it. And it's spelled out. God forbid my husband and I leave the planet too soon. Mm-hmm. It's spelled out what they get and when they get it and how they get it. <laughs> and how they might want to invest it to <laughs> and grow And they got to talk to some people yeah. before they spend any yeah. of it. <laughs> because it, it's, it's, that in, it's that important. And I just realized these are the things that we don't know because we don't have exposure to it. So use it as a teachable moment and have empathy for the loss that they feel, but remind them that there really isn't a loss. Yes. And I and I think the more that we go through this process, the more Carol's Daughters and Shea Moistures and, and other brands that they are that, mm-hmm. that go through this, the easier it will get for us. Yes. And the, and the more that people like you, the more you all talk about this journey, it educates people, which is why I call it a playbook point, because your point is so, so well taken that People didn't get the joke. And I think as people of color, because there aren't enough of us who have gone through this process, we yes. think about building a business and having it be ours in perpetuity. And right. there are entrepreneurs that are a couple of generations before you and I who, you know, started a business so they could, quote, pass it on to the kids. But the reality is the kids may not want it or the kids may not be equipped to keep it or grow it. Right. And so if they don't want to take it to the next level, then you want to create a wealth event or an exit so that they can then have the cash to do whatever it is that's going to make them successful if it's not this business. So the more we have these kinds of conversations, the more I think people will get it. But it sounds like uh, it was a tough moment, but you have turned it into a big educational moment. Yes. Can you tell us a little bit about Carol's Daughter and and the beginning? Let's, Let's level set for some of our listeners that might not know you. How did you get the idea to start selling skin products out of your apartment or selling them at all? It started out actually as a hobby and that hobby grew out of my love for fragrance. I've loved fragrance since I was a child. I began to make my own scents. Then I wanted to have moisturizers that would go with my fragrances. And I just began to look for ingredients that I could purchase and and I just experimented. I said, well let me let me see what happens if I put cocoa butter in this. Let me try glycerin. Let me try aloe vera. And I approached it the way that you would approach cooking or baking, trying out new recipes. And I loved it and just enjoyed it. And it was something that I did for friends and family as gifts. And then in May of 1993, my mother just says, you know, the church is having a flea market in a couple of weeks. You should sell some of your body butters. And I was like, really? You think people would buy them? And that was the beginning of me selling. It was something that I was doing as a hobby. I wasn't reliant upon it for income. I had a job, and this was the thing that I did on the side. So it was really more about let me see where this goes. And how did you decide to make this, quote, a real business and you started, you put together a store in Fort Greene, Brooklyn? Did you think about an exit at that time? Because this this is all about talking about how you get to that exit. So did you think about that exit when you started the business or did you say, I'm going to start a business and just see how big it can get? 
I honestly said, I'm going to start this and see where it goes. Uh, When we opened up that first store, I didn't know where it was going to lead. I thought perhaps this will be how I bring income into my home. We were investigating what a website was. You know, we opened the store in 99. We opened the website in 2000. It was still an area that was relatively new. People were nervous to put their credit card into the Internet. I didn't start to think the language of exit until much later on after investors had come into the brand. I was I was really just sort of open to see where this goes. Okay, what do I do next? What do I learn next? I often refer to Carol's daughter as my first child. Mm-hmm. And in being her parent, I accept my responsibility in shepherding her through the world, but I don't necessarily dictate every single thing that she does. Mm-hmm. So I've I've been along there with her to guide her, to make sure she's safe, to make sure she's going in the right direction. But I'm learning from her as I'm guiding her. How did you actually scale the company as you were growing it? Because, you know, we can tell a story of starting it because it was hobby, a hobby and you loved it, having the realization, hmm, I, I think I got something here. Now you need to scale it. Mm-hmm. So there's a decision to go out and get equity for the first time. So talk about that and how you thought about that, because now you got to sell a piece of the baby. Right, right. Right. So how did you think about that? I, I remember sitting in my office at home and I needed new labels I needed to upgrade my website and I needed to upgrade my phone system. And each one of those things had a $100,000 price tag attached to it, roughly between 85 and 100K. And I really needed to do all three. And I didn't have the money to do one. So I realized okay, I've built this from nothing. And I found a way, you know, when I needed business loans, I I would get business loans, but I was still paying off the business loan. So I couldn't go get another one. Mm -hmm. And I ended up only getting the phone systems because I could finance that. Mm -hmm. So I, I kind of got to this space where I said, you know what, maybe now is the time that I need to think about investors because I've really done a lot by myself and I don't think that I can do any more. And I felt like on the outside, I looked like this very successful indie brand that was doing amazing. But on the inside, everything was super fragile. Mm -hmm. And even though I had, you know, insurance and things like that, if something outside of the scope of what insurance would cover were to happen, I didn't I didn't have any way to recover. There was no reserve. Uh-huh. And and I said, this isn't how it's supposed to be. And I don't believe that I've been guided in this path and built something from a $100 investment. And at that point, it was just over $2 million in sales. I didn't think I had done all of that to just stop mm-hmm. or for it to fail or for it to fall apart. So I began to open myself up to that possibility of what does it look like to have an investor? What does that mean? How much equity do I have to give up for someone else to come in? And once I opened up my mind and my heart, if you will, to that process, I began to hear from people like, let's have these conversations. Let's look. Let's talk. I had a business partner initially in 2004. That was Steve Stout. Some of our listeners may not be familiar with Steve. So can you give them a little bit of an introduction? Introduction to Steve. 
Absolutely. Steve Stout is a a self-made entrepreneur who started out in the music business and leveraged his connections in music and began to work in advertising and and marketing. And he started a company called Translation. And that's when I met Steve, when he was beginning the the development of Translation. Yeah. How'd you find Steve? Steve found me through a colleague of his who was a customer of the brand and a Ah. fan of the brand. And she made the introduction of the two of us. And when I spoke to him, it was so different from anyone else that I had spoken to because he he spoke as if he had a recorder in my office (laughs) and knew exactly what my issues were, where other people, they tended to take the position of, well, are you really serious? Are you ready to go to the next level? And I'm like, what what's the next level? Like, what? Of course, I'm serious. I'm sitting here. Right. He didn't say any of that. He he talked about the struggles that I was having, even though there was no way for him to know that mm-hmm. I was having them, and how I know this would be solved if you just had a check, and that would be solved if you just had a check. But it's not just the money. It's not just the money. It's the marketing. It, it's everything else. And I want to figure this out with you, and I want to help you. Mm-hmm. Wow. So it was an introduction. So it was your accessing your network. But let's let's have a playbook point. It was also your messaging to ask. Right. And so often entrepreneurs don't want to share with people what what it is they're trying to do, especially when it's around capital. So you said, I need to get some outside capital in. And she said, I know somebody you might need to talk to. Exactly. So that that's an important point is to message that to to the right people and then to have some kind of discernment to make sure that the person's money Mm -hmm. is aligned with your vision. Yes. If you will. And then Steve and I worked together to put together an investment team that included Jay-Z, Jada Pinkett Smith, Will Smith, Jimmy Iovine, and a few other um, record company executives. And that was in 2005. And we operated together and grew the business. And let me ask you, did you feel like you had made it as an entrepreneur when you started getting some of the, the big name investors? Did you feel like, OK, I've made it as an entrepreneur? Or frankly, was that more pressure because you say, oh, I, I have other people's money now. This is this is real. <laughs> it, it definitely is the 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 latter. But there, I, I felt like I had so many moments of wow. I didn't think I'd get this far. Okay. And then I'd get a little, fr- wow, I never thought that I'd get here. This is crazy. I, I remember being at home um, when the pages were coming through the fax machine, the signature pages when uh, Jay-Z and, and Will and Jada had become partners. And, you know, like everything's electronic, like everybody gets their page and they sign it. And then your lawyers collect all the signatures. And I'm looking at the signature pages like, this is real. Yeah. This is actually happening. But it was never it was never the feeling of I've made it. I have nothing else to do. But it also didn't feel like, oh, my God, I have so much to do. I have so much to do. Mm-hmm. It's this wonderful feeling of accomplishment. And then, OK, let's get to work. What to do we next do next? Thing. And then at the end of 2007, we took on equity partners with Pegasus. And that was whole new world for me. You know, it was my first due diligence process that I thought I wouldn't survive, but I did. (laughs) (laughs) And at the time that Pegasus came in, I understood that Uh. the end game there was they come in with this capital, we build the business together, and then we get to a place where we sell to a strategic partner like a L'Oreal. 
We have a, a study out uh, that came out last year about the Trillion Dollar Report that talks about the challenges that multicultural entrepreneurs and women have in accessing capital. Because, as you know, it's single digit and low single digit percentages that both women and entrepreneurs of color get from the VC community. Um, you you obviously had the benefit of the introduction, but can you talk about along the way as you scaled your business and even as you got to the Pegasus conversation, can you talk about some of the challenges that you encountered as a woman of color uh, in trying to raise this capital along the way? I have to say that because I went into that process with a business partner. Okay. I didn't encounter the same difficulties that people encounter. Mm -hmm. And while I would never look at what I've done and say, oh, but if I did this differently and if I did that, because I'm, I, I know that what I did is what needed to be done. But I do wonder what if I could have been the man in the conversation. I think it made a difference to people who invested ah. in the company that Steve was the successful self-made businessman yes. who uh-huh. had this forward thinking and and these great things that he had done that they could look at and see his track record and then he's partnered with this really great woman who's so authentic who's the face of the brand you know so he was like the business savvy and I was the warm and fuzzy mm-hmm. just to generalize yeah, it sure. you know what would that have been like if I could have been both, mm-hmm. because I, I I think that part of what got me through the door was that I was standing next to him mm-hmm. and, the, and then standing next to his own success. That's I right. don't know how easy it would have been for him if he hadn't had been a successful person because he was a young African-American male. Mm-hmm. So if I was his first venture I don't know that Pegasus would be involved yes. necessarily. That's I don't know that they would point. have listened to him in the way that they did. He just happened to be a remarkable person who had already done a lot mm-hmm. at, at such a young age that they just looked at his track record and they're like, all right, this guy's like got the Midas touch. Let's mm-hmm. listen. Wow. So let's talk about the process of meeting strategics. And by strategics, we mean a buyer that is in the same industry and that can leverage what it is your business is all about. Yes. Uh, At what point do you start to think strategically about meeting people along the way so that they get to know you, they start to monitor your process, they start to monitor your growth till the point that they now come to you and and say, hey, are you interested? Because we'd like to buy. So how'd you think about that? The way that the process worked for us was, you know, after we had come out of the recession and began to really build the brand and, and think in a more strategic way, when we got to 2000, 2013, we knew that we had a good story to tell. There was a nice three-year arc, Mm -hmm. if you will, with the business. And we decided that it was the right time to start having those conversations. And what was eye-opening for me was my role from a business perspective was always the soul of the brand, the person that gives it the authenticity, if you will. And I didn't think of myself as the business part of the brand. 
And when we got closer to that point of going out and speaking to strategics, the the first part that you have to do is to speak to banks, to speak to financial institutions and kind of interview them and see if they understand who you are and if they can represent you well. And in going through those conversations, I began to learn how important my role actually was as a founder who's present within the brand and, and what that meant and what potentially mean too strategic. So it was a an empowering moment for me where I got to learn that part of myself, get over that fear that I would have of, well, can I speak strategically? Am I going to be right in the business meeting setting? Because I was accustomed to being the artist, mm-hmm. if you will. Mm. And uh-huh. um, it was so empowering and and I learned so much through that process but it started with interviewing the banks first learning the process learning how they would approach it and then assessing well which one is going to do the best job for the brand and then we made that selection and then they began to present opportunities to us and financial institutions that we should meet, companies that we should meet. And the process in 2013, it didn't result in a sale, but it resulted in the conversations and the groundwork. Mm -hmm. So that in 2014, L'Oreal came back to the table and wanted to discuss things further. Mm -hmm. So again, you had a process that led you to early conversations with people. But now knowing what you know and understanding that process, would you have started to have some of those conversations just to build relationships, not to, you know, position yourself necessarily for a sale, but just so you could get out there and kind of understand who the marketplace of buyers might be? Would you have done that earlier? Absolutely. Yes. Okay. Um, and and there, there was some of it that was done in, in kind of a low-key way. Um, my business partner was very good at getting connected with different people. So, But now, even though I'm not building a business right now, you know, I'm, I'm running the brand now. But when I think about if five years from now I want to do something, how would I go about doing it? I think about it. Today, even though I don't even have anything on my plate, Mm -hmm. and if an opportunity presents itself to meet someone, to have lunch with someone, to to connect at an event with someone, and I'm an introvert, so this Mm -hmm. is not easy for me to do, I do it, and I keep the the lines of communication open because I feel like for particularly for women and for women of color. As many allies as we can have is so critical. Yes. You you need that person that you can talk to, that you can, you know, ask the questions that you don't want to ask when mm-hmm. you're in a meeting. That's right. That's <laughs> exactly know, right. When you don't want to let somebody know, I don't know this. Yes, that's exactly right. <laughs> you know, you and I and I did have those people that I could call and say, okay, we're going to have this meeting. Let me know what kinds of things they're going to ask. What should I say? How should I respond to this? How should I respond to that? And and I'm grateful for that. Excellent. Before I talk about how you got there and the scaling, let me ask you one more question about the exit. Knowing what you know now, do you think you sold at the right time of the company's development? Since hindsight is 2020, would you have uh, built more value yourself for another three to five years? Or do you think you were right at the right time in the right space and the partnership with L'Oreal was the thing to take it to the next scaling level? Absolutely. Right time, right place. I wouldn't change one single thing. I, even though they 
technically, I mean, it sounds harsh, but in business, this is not harsh. Technically, they rejected the offer in 2013. You know, I processed it as a rejection. I wouldn't even change that because I learned so much from going through that and then being there, understanding, oh, no, 2013 would have been awful. 14 was so much better because I I got to a place where I understood what I was capable of doing standing on my own two feet. Okay. Versus in 2013 it was more of that well maybe we can do this if we're partnered with them and maybe we can do that if we're with them. And it didn't happen and we still had to do those things and we did them and we did them well. Yes. So when I walked into that partnership in in 2014 when I walked into that acquisition, I walked in a much stronger person. Yes. So yeah, I wouldn't change one step of it at and what, all. What were the two big lessons that you did learn going through the process in 13? I learned that just because it looks like it's supposed to happen and everything makes sense, it doesn't mean that it's wrong that it doesn't. Okay. It doesn't mean that you failed. It doesn't mean that that you did something that you shouldn't have done. It just was not the right mm-hmm. time. Um, and I learned that I could stand up mm-hmm. and and survive. And even though things feel shaky, you you can get your footing. Mm-hmm. And I and I learned that I was stronger than I thought I was. Mm-hmm. Let me ask you: In choosing your your dream buyer, you mentioned earlier that you knew L'Oreal was the one. Were you at all worried about how they might change the company, what it might mean for your people and your team going forward? Because that's often a consideration when you're folded into a big company that you, there's going to be some dislocation of the people that have been in the build in the struggle with you. Right. I didn't worry about it much because in building Carol's daughter from the kitchen table thing that it started at with just me and family to where it had to go and all of the different hands that had to be in the pots, if you will, um, and all the people who had to come into the kitchen, I was very accustomed to navigating that. And, And there was a difficult period in that process. I remember being in my company and feeling like I didn't know where I belonged. I didn't know what I was supposed to do because you get to a place where your employees know more than you do because the skill set is so different. I came from a television production background. They've been in the beauty business for 15 years. Yes. So when I navigated that and learned how to still sit at the head of the table, but still sit at the table, lead, but still learn. I was less fearful of that process within Mm L'Oreal and less fearful of it because there's so much that's kind of spelled out contractually that you understand before you go in how things are going to work. And it was also very clear that they wanted me to be there. Mm -hmm. You know, when someone hands you a contract for five years, they want you to hang around. Yes. So I I never felt like somebody's trying to change me or take this over. As a matter of fact, they kept saying, the longer you're out of the system, the better. We want you to stay as precious and wonderful as you are. Mm-hmm. Well, my last question before we actually go to our lightning round is, what would you say to entrepreneurs who are at this stage now trying to think about that exit? Like, What are the key questions they should ask themselves about the exit the timing, are they ready? Because I often see entrepreneurs who take an exit, frankly, Lisa, because they're tired. 
this is going to sound very sort of like simple, but I, I think it's honestly what it is. If you are in a place where you're making a decision that's based out of fear, it's not the right choice. It just isn't. So if you're about to exit because you're tired, because you're afraid, because you don't know how to do it anymore, don't do it then because it's not coming from the right place. That's when you have to say, how do I get to the next step? What should I do next? And I feel like when you open up the question in yourself, the universe starts to reveal the answers to you. You shut them out when you operate from, I'm so tired. I can't do this anymore. This is too difficult. Yes, it is. I'm not dismissing that, but that's not how you get to the next step and it's not how you get the answer. When I made the choices that I made, I made them from a place of knowledge. I understood when Pegasus came in, this is the capital that they bring in. If we do super, super well, this is what the waterfall looks like. They're going to get this. I'm going to get that. If we tank and nothing happens and they are going to take back exactly what they put in at the end of the day, this is the amount of money that I'm going to have. Can I live with that? Can I start over with that? And I understood that. Mm -hmm. And I said, okay, this is worth the risk. Mm -hmm. This is worth it to see because I'd rather see than live with what if I had. Mm -hmm. I didn't want to live with what if. Mm -hmm. And though there was fear and concern and trepidation, I made the decision from a place of understanding the landscape. Yep. Okay, well, thank you, Miss Lisa. One of the things that we have started to do as a tradition on Access and Opportunity is to give our listeners an opportunity to get to know you a little bit at the end of our conversation. And we call it the lightning round. So I'll ask you a series of six or seven questions, this or that, and you tell us which one is, is the one for you. So okay. are you ready? Mm-hmm. Okay. Favorite book or magazine? Favorite book, like Water for Chocolate. Okay. City or the countryside? City. Winter or summer? Summer. Almond cookie or black vanilla? Almond cookie. Coffee or tea? Must be coffee first thing in the morning, but for enjoyment, tea. Email or phone call? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Email. Okay. <laughs> That's the introvert. <laughs> okay. Fair point. Fair point. If you had a talk show, who would you want to be your first guest? Ooh, Whoopi Goldberg. Okay. What's one word that you'd like to use to describe your legacy? Loving. Lisa Price, thank you very much. <laughs> thank you. Thank you for listening to this first episode of Season 4 of Access and Opportunity. For our next episode, we sit down with Doug Song, avid skateboarder and founder of Duo Security, he sold his company to Cisco for a reported $2.35 billion. Join us as we ask him how he got there and how he got out. We'll see you then.